Good morning. Look around real fast. Just want you to know that you guys are not fair weather fans. And now that I've raised your ego, we're going to read the Bible and lower your ego. So looking forward to that. It's nice to be back in the book of John and hearing from the disciple whom Jesus loved who writes about all Jesus said and did. There were two battleships assigned to a training squadron, and they had been at sea on maneuvers and heavy weather for several days. At night, the visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all the activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out, the lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant they were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course, advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send, I am a captain, change your course 20 degrees. I am a second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send. I am a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I am a lighthouse. The captain changed their course. What we're going to see today is that God's authority is much more than any sea captain. And as the captain misunderstood the person talking to him about this course and who should actually move, we will see similar things as these spiritual authorities speak to the Alpha and Omega. We've been walking through the book of John, the gospel written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, a disciple who was very close to Jesus, who could speak from firsthand information about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And we picked up back in the book of John, chapter 7, after being out of the book for six months, where Jesus has gone to the festival of tabernacles, a Jewish festival, and has begun to teach in the temple courts. Jesus has started what would be considered by some a very heated debate with the Jewish leaders and those who have come to worship at the temple. And what we will see is a group of people who did not understand, identify, or like authority that was in front of them. Society today has a very similar reaction to authority, especially when it comes to the authority that comes from God in the scriptures. We like the Proverbs as long as they're not judgy, but we could do without the lordship, the bowing down, and the repentance. So today we're going to see Jesus interact with a group of people who did not embrace biblical authority, and I wonder if maybe we'll just see ourselves in this altercation, not as the hero, but as the ones in need of a hero to rescue them. We talk a lot about the Great Commission here at Church of the Valley, and it starts with Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So before Jesus gives the disciples their commission of making disciples of all nations, of all generations, he starts with, all authority is mine, he says. All authority, heaven, earth, all of it, it's mine. So before we even look at what is about to be said in this passage, I would encourage you to do a self-inventory. 
I'd encourage you to look at yourself and think and ask this question, what does God not have authority over in my life right now? I'm not going to pass the microphone. I'm not going to ask you to confess yet. What I'm going to encourage you to do is to really think about that because as we open this text and walk through it or crawl through it, we're going to notice some things about the things that we're holding back. I'm really big on responsibility. If you know me, you probably know that about me. I believe God's economy in particular is faithfulness. I believe God gives faith to his people and the people that are actually being faithful were giving back to God by being faithful and yet he gave it to us in the first place. And I believe we're specifically called to be faithful in our responsibilities. If you have a role, understand that role. And be faithful to it, not because it's easy, but because it's something that God does in his people. What God does in his people is to be faithful, to be consistent, to not just do one thing and then go, ah, that's too hard, and then run to something else, but to be faithful with the things that are given to us. So we talk a lot more about responsibility here at this church than we do authority. But with responsibility comes authority to use so we may be faithful with our responsibilities. Here we go, verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? We're jumping into the story. If you weren't here uh, two weeks ago, you probably, this is new to you, but these people of Jerusalem had been talking about Jesus before Jesus had come to this festival. He had been trending, if you will, as many talked about him before he came, and now there is this ruckus because he's shown up and he started to teach in the temple courts like what most rabbis would do. And there was this continued disagreement about who Jesus is. Some considered him a blasphemer, and some considered him the Messiah. That's a pretty big in-between, if you will. There was murmuring of the fact that uh, some of the religious leaders were attempting to corner and kill Jesus for insurrection, and yet the narrative that John records is that while Jesus was speaking, the authorities weren't saying a word to him. Don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. They had not attempted to commandeer him. So the assumption was that maybe they actually believed the claims that Jesus was the Messiah because they weren't stopping him from doing what he was doing. What a polarizing reputation Jesus must have had as these people heard so much about him before they even had seen him. I wonder if that's today. Or I wonder if that's us today. I wonder if those of us have heard so much about Jesus, not necessarily who he really is, but an interpretation of what others think he's like. I wonder if people stay away from ever hearing about the biblical Jesus because of how church is portrayed and how self-identifying Christians act and talk about him. Have you ever been offended by someone else that claimed they were a Christian? I have, and I'm sure I've offended as well. And but my thought through this is we're looking at this text and we realize that not a lot of people talk about the biblical Jesus. What if we as Christians and the way we acted, we weren't the excuse for people to not hear about Jesus? I know for a fact that God does not have a formula when it comes to how he draws people to himself. You could grow up in the church 
You could live in a hut in Africa. You can be indoctrinated by a cult. God can and does draw some of those and everyone in between to himself, and there's no formula that you can get ahead of. There's no formula you can manipulate. But I do know this, that God provides faith to those who seek him authentically, those who embrace his authority for the right reasons. But I also know that there's a lot of poser religiosity out there. Did you guys know this? Like, it's out there. And I know that for most people, Christianity is a belief system that just covers all of the bases because they don't want to go to hell. Did you know that people think this way, too? But hear me, a Jesus who only saves from hell is not a biblical Jesus. Jesus doesn't just save you from hell when you come into relationship with him. He saves you to himself and to the kingdom of God. But for the religious folk, Jesus is offensive. Because when it came to the law, the Pharisees wanted to justify themselves by this law. And Jesus said they couldn't do it. And not only that, but he said he was the only one who could keep the law. And he offered himself as the sole means of justification so people could be made right before God. Did you know that we want to do it ourselves? Did you know that we want to self-justify as much as possible? We want to bring something to our salvation. We don't want to have to give all the credit to God. And there's this quote, it's a good one, and it's usually attributed to Jonathan Edwards, who was a phenomenal preacher hundreds of years ago, but I couldn't find any place where he actually said it. So here's the quote. You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Woo-wee. That's good. I wish it was Jonathan Edwards. I'll take it. I said it. And the more we embrace our need and realize our spiritual deficit, the more irresistible Jesus becomes to us. No one can be made alive spiritually. This is an emphatic statement, so feel free to argue with me, just not as we walk out. You can email me. No one can be made alive spiritually without embracing their spiritual deadness without Christ. No one can. Because when you're dead, what can you do? Nothing. And yet God reaches into the deadness and he draws people to himself. Verse 27. But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, the crowd says, no one will know where he is from. (laughs) The crowd was justifying why they could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were incorrect in their knowledge of Scripture. Did you know that people get Scripture incorrect sometimes? Crazy! They did not know what they thought they knew, even though these God-fearing Jews would say that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the left side of your Bible, was their authority. The Hebrew Scriptures actually said something different. In Matthew chapter 2, which was written New Testament, here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this Specifically, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This was a prophecy that was spoken prior to what was written in Matthew, and it was said by Micah, and they they had quoted this in Matthew 2, which the Jewish crowd should have understood but did not. They thought they knew the word, but they did not know the word, possibly because much of the teaching that they had heard from rabbis in the temple courts weren't directly from the Old Testament. But what they would do, and we said this a few weeks ago, is that they would share their interpretation of another rabbi's interpretation. And they never actually got to what the Lord said. Misunderstanding Scripture. This is, this is almost a warning for you, and I don't know how you take warnings, but like, if I knew you were about to crash, I would say, watch out! That's what this is. Misunderstanding scripture and not reading it for yourself and not discussing it with others who have gone before you is very dangerous because then you may just miss the Messiah like this crowd is about to. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, he cried out, yes, you know me. I keep thinking Iron Man in Infinity War. You know me? Yes, you know me. And you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. Pause. I feel that Jesus was saying, yeah, you know of me, and you've heard where I come from, but you don't really know me. You don't really know where I am from at all. You know of me. Jesus didn't have an identity problem, church. We do. If we don't really know who he is, if we don't really know him, if we really can't have our identity be found in him if we don't know the God of the word, because for a lot of us, we don't realize how necessary it is to find our identity in him and him alone. I pretty much want to preach an identity sermon every single week. And the truth is that the text talks about it specifically often, and so that's why we talk about identity, because what a waste of time. If you drive through the monsoon that you were going through to get here, you put on your fancy clothes, you come, you sing the songs, you hear the word taught, and yet you don't really know him. It's so much different when you put your identity in him. And we're going to walk through why that's important. It's not just that we don't know him, which is true of many of us, but it's that we miscalculate how important our identity being found in him actually is. If you spend all your life treating Jesus like a homeboy or a good teacher or a good idea, rather than the manifestation of the good news, you do not know him at all. Just putting that out there. We will find our identity in a lot of things that can not bear the weight of a human created in God's image. And as we put our identity in things rather than in Jesus, they will just disappoint us over and over. I'm 38 years old, born in 1980. Don't judge me or feel free, I don't care. Good year, 1980. And I know for me, in my 38 years of life, I have found my identity in a lot of things. And I'm about to list them for you. Are you ready? And maybe, just maybe, you'll go, oh, maybe I've done that too. Here are the things I've found my identity in. Relationships with the opposite sex. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm just going to put these out there. 
I found my identity in relationships with the opposite sex. I found my identity in cars, in sports, in video games. Not Fortnite, like uh, 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 GoldenEye, all right? That's what we're talking about. Hobbies, things I've collected, property that I've purchased, accomplishments, my children. Sports teams, go Sox. My church technology, and more often than not, my professions. And I'm sure that there are many more, but these are the things I could remember with my 38 years of life. These are the things that bid for my attention. These are what bid for my devotion. These are things I've placed my identity in. And every single one of those things have left me wanting because every single one of those things are not a sovereign Lord who knows me, created me, forgave me, and sustains me. You hear me? We will find our identity in what culture deems more important than God. Did you guys know that? Because to culture, God is just a higher power that exists only in the hearts and minds of people who are religious and are in need of something to believe in so God can be whatever you want him to be. Culture doesn't describe who God is, church. This does. The Bible describes who he is. And the Bible reveals who he is. And we have a choice. We can receive him and all that he is in accordance with the Holy Scriptures that have been given to you and I so that you and I could know God personally, or we can reject him. Not just by not believing in him, but by not putting Christ at the center and making him our identity. See, I just raised the bar a lot. Your Christian living is not doing a bunch of good things. It's placing who you are in the hands of Jesus Christ. You guys see that? It's not just all the good things that you can do. Man, there are great opportunities. At 3 o'clock, you guys can go and, and serve Valley Village. But doing that doesn't justify you. It's not in the good things that you do. It's by placing who you are in the hands of Jesus Christ. See, John wrote this gospel, and he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because he found his identity in the fact that God Almighty loves him. Paul, the apostle who wrote many, much of the New Testament, Paul, who was against Christianity and ran into Jesus alive after he died and switched teams, Paul, the apostle, addressed many of his letters with terms like this. He said, I am Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. James, Jesus' own brother, called himself James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, Oh, stick your foot in your mouth. Peter addressed himself as Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, Jesus' other brother from the same mother, called himself Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Real talk. We'll start now. You ready? What if we saw our existence as servants and sent ones of Jesus Christ, because we're sons and daughters of the God Most High? What if our professions were not our identity, but the place in which God uses us? What if we were Bill the engineer for Jesus Christ? Put that on your stationery, huh? Stationery, it's paper, never mind. 
You start texts with, I am Bill, the engineer. That's weird if your name's not Bill and you're not an engineer, but anyway. What if we saw ourselves as Trevor, the college student for the glory of Jesus Christ? What if we saw ourselves as Sally, the stay-at-home mom in service to the Lord Jesus Christ? Think we would realize that more of what we do matters in the kingdom of God because of whose we are? Because we're not of this world if we've received Christ. We're not of this world if the Holy Spirit has penetrated our hearts and lives amongst us. We are part of the kingdom of God because he has adopted us. And we place our identity in him. If you want to know if your identity is in something other than Christ, and I think some of you are like, oh, I don't know if it is. How do you view your sin? I'm assuming you all sin. I'm pretty sure we're not going to sing songs to you next week. How do you view your sin? It's when we stop caring about our sin that we have the problem. We all fall short, church. We all sin. We all are level at the foot of the cross. We are all in need of a Savior, but it's when we start to excuse our sin and we say things like, well, we're only human. Shut up. It's when we start to make our identity our sin and not Jesus Christ. It's when we start to make created things more important than the Creator when we place our identity in something other than Christ that we miss the mark. And the Hebrew word for miss the mark means to sin. Verse 29, Jesus says, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. There's words Jesus could have used. He could have said, I am from the great I am. I am from Yahweh, but he doesn't. He, uses, he just uses male pronouns. Why? Because some understood what he was saying and some didn't. And he starts to use this, and he's saying, I'm from him. And some people are like, who's him? But I think they had heard his reputation. Jesus says, I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. Here's what he implies. I am an ambassador of the Father who was sent here to live, die, rise, and ascend. So big question, pretty important question for all of us, because otherwise we're playing church. Do we know him? Do we know God? Not like an Orthodox Jew who is still waiting for a Messiah to come and missed him. Not like a Mormon who is attempting to become their own God, but we, do we know the God of the Bible? Paul writes to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 4, he says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, were by, nature, who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning your back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Paul's speaking to the church in Galatia, who by God's grace had been adopted into God's family, many of these readers, but they were being influenced by their former pagan ways. And those former pagan ways were drawing these Galatians back. Paul's argument wasn't just that they knew of God, but more importantly, God knew them personally because Jesus was their Savior and Lord. If we don't have a submitted, personal, and experiential relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot call ourselves Christians. 
In fact, we shouldn't even say we believe in God. Because even the demons believe in God, but they don't submit to him. Being known by God means that God sees us as his children. Not because of what we've done, but what Christ has accomplished through his life, his submission, his death, his resurrection for us. Verse 30. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. (laughs) I love the Bible. Sometimes it just says stuff and you just keep reading and you don't even notice what it says. I adore verses like this because these are miracles that no one notices. John shares them in this very nonchalant way, but he has a theological explanation, doesn't he? No one laid a hand on him because his time had not come. Okay, but give me the the inner workings. Like, how did they not lay a hand on him? What happened? If I said you tried to seize him, but you didn't lay a hand on him, I'd say you didn't really try. Unless you were kept from laying a hand on him. And Jesus has the power to do so. He would stop people from doing things that were not within God's timetable. This is seen in other Gospels. John's not the only one that records it, where Jesus' words were infuriating religious authorities. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus and the whole, you know, died for me and rose again. But it exposed their ignorance and defiance of God's authority. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has gotten up into a synagogue. He's opened a scroll. He started to read it, and he called out everyone. It's awesome. And they were upset. So look what happens. Verse 28 of Luke 4. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of town. They did not call an Uber to send Jesus to the end of town. They were pushing him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. Why? In order to throw him off the cliff. Verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Say, what? This isn't Grand Theft Auto where you had a bunch of stars and all of a sudden you used a code and the police stopped chasing you. That's not what this is. They didn't forget what they were doing here. This is an example of the extent of God's authority. He didn't have to be sneaky because he's sovereign. Woo! That's my God. And he could and he does control situations. Maybe not the way that we would want him to but he is ultimately the authority over this world and especially over those who submit to his lordship. Man, I am so confident that Jesus is Lord, not just because I read the Bible, but I'm positive he rose from the dead. And because I know he rose from the dead, there's this confident walk, kind of like this, uh, I want to walk with. That was a really bad example. But I also know that I've wrestled with him and he's humbled me in a lot of ways. And so I really do walk with a limp. Verse 31. Still many in the crowd believed in him. Oh, that's cute. They said, when the Messiah comes, he will perform... Uh, sorry, always read that wrong. When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Some of the crowd was kind of coming around, sort of. <laughs> They're noticing that he's special. They're noticing that Jesus is different. They're noticing, uh, 1 Peter, King James translation, that he's peculiar. And they're wondering if anyone else could come and do the things that he's doing any better than he's doing them. 
One thing that breaks my heart is when people don't realize how good Jesus really is. This past week, I got to spend some time with a few of our worship leaders and a few worship leaders and worship directors and worship pastors from other churches in the area. We just invited them over. We hung out in the chapel. We fed them lunch. We talked a bunch. We shared war stories about you. (laughs) We studied scripture. We prayed together. And we spent much of the time just worshiping God. And what was so great for me to watch was our worship director, Aaron Chaney, not be, feel like she had to like lead everyone. She got to just worship her king. I got to watch other worship pastors who've been doing that gig for quite some time not feel like they had to make sure, okay, three songs and then there's a transition and then you pray, they weren't doing it. We just worshiped God. And it reminded me how important it is to have times of worship for myself with others and individually. I was blasting worship this worship music this week as I was writing my sermon because I, I can't do silence. That drives me nuts. I sleep in silence. That's good. But I need you to hear that worshiping doesn't just mean you listen to worship music. Your life is a worship service. And what that reminded me of, I left so refreshed. I, I left so reminded of how good our Lord is to make us righteous before him, to make, give us right standing before him, to give us gifts, to give us his church, to give us people to spur us on in this Christian life prior to glory. Verse 32, the Pharisees, the bad guys, heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests, they're with them, and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. The Pharisees and chief priests who had been exalted because of essentially their pious do-gooding wanted this Jesus to be arrested because he didn't fit into the mold that they had created what the Messiah ought to look like based on their thinking. I believe Pharisees' biggest problem was that they wanted to self-justify rather than receive grace. Because when you receive grace... You cannot take credit for it. You didn't accept Jesus. He accepted you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of how good he is. Pharisees always want the credit. And they always look down on people who can't do something as well or don't do it like they do it. I've been constantly reminded, annoyingly so, on a parable that just keeps coming to mind as I'm in different situations, especially talking with other church leaders and stuff like that, and, and this parable that comes to mind is the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus speaks it, and he drops the mic on some people, and he challenges the religious. And here's how it starts in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, not because they were tall, because they were religious, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Sounds like a good joke, right? No, no. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So a Pharisee was someone that was astute with the word, they, they uh, taught it, they lived by it, they tried to overdo it. I mean, they were just all about trying to earn their way. Then you have the tax collector, okay? We hear tax collector, some of us are like, oh, IRS agent, not a bad job. No, not really a bad job. I mean, you're not that liked, but not a bad job. But a tax collector isn't like an IRS agent in our culture. 
The closest we have is a tax collector is like an ISIS sympathizer taking money from America to fund ISIS. That's what a tax, tax collector looks like in this context. So when Jesus would speak about him, this was incredibly scandalous because you know what you're going to see? That the Pharisee is not the better one. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. And you have to say it like this when you're a Pharisee. You ready? God. Sorry, that was actually too much John Piper. Never mind. God. I thank you that I'm not like other people. <laughs> yeah, you are. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, check, check, and check. Or even like this tax collector. You're right, you're not like him. I fast twice a week, <laughs> okay, and give a tenth of all I get. Gross. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If I have a verse for this, this culture, it's that. Everything we do on social media is to exalt ourselves, isn't it? Everything we're attempting to do is to try to get attention onto ourselves. And Jesus says, you don't need likes because I love you. That's what he points out. Those who attempt to exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I have so much pride, church. Can I just be real? Like, I'll start now. I have so much pride. I want to take credit for so many things. I know what a big deal I think I am, and I don't understand why you don't get that. And yet God has over and over and over, and I can do this all day, reminded me that it's not about me. That this church is not about me. This life I live is not about me. The gifts I steward are not about me. Here's the one that's going to hurt. God is not about me. God is about God, and I get to be his. not about me. It's not about you. God is about his glory, and we get to be his. I don't need to exalt myself. What I need to do, what I yearn to do, what I want to do is exalt Jesus. And guess what? I'm with him. Not because of anything I've done, but by God's scandalous and infinite grace, I can stand before you forgiven because of Christ Jesus. Not because of me. I did nothing to be saved. God reached into this dead spiritual corpse who wanted nothing to do with him and removed the veil so I could actually see how beautiful he is. The gospel is that God is good. You are not. You need him in the simplest form. And Jesus came and did for you what you could not do for yourself so you could be made righteous before a holy and perfect God if you trust Christ as your Lord. Woo, that's some gospel up in here. Verse 33, then Jesus said, 
I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Thanks for the riddle, Jesus. Jesus is calling his shot, not to quote a Yankee from the 30s, but Jesus is calling his shot. He isn't mincing words. He doesn't expect them to understand because not even his disciples understood until all of what he just said took place. But Jesus says, I'm with you for only a short time. You want to know why Jesus came to earth? To die. He came to die. He's headed to the cross. There is a time, and that time has not yet come, but he is living out a plan and the will of his Father, and that will will not be thwarted. But Jesus doesn't just die, church. You don't have to come to Easter or hear about the resurrection at COV. He doesn't just die. We believe in a risen God. He rose. A dead man came back to life. He showed himself to over 500 people over 40 days. Can you believe that? Well, that's weak because it's part of your justification. If you can't believe that he rose from the dead, you don't know my God at all. He also says, you will look for me, but you will not find me. He's not in his grave, church. And after the 40 days, he goes back to the Father. He ascended to heaven to where these enemies of the gospel personified, they could not go. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we cannot find him. Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? Verse 36, what did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? I'm picturing like a married couple in a car arguing about something I just preached. That's what I'm picturing. And once again, John explains that they are thinking about the physical while Jesus is speaking of the spiritual. Their pride would not let them accept Jesus' words as eternal words, but attempted to understand his words by questioning the physical. There is no problem with questions. Okay, guys? There's no problem with questions. I write out questions as I prepare every sermon. I read scripture with questions in mind to answer those questions in the sermon. But it's one thing to have questions to understand who God is. It's another thing entirely to question God and his word and his authority. Do you ask questions because you want to know him? Or do you ask questions because you want an excuse not to believe in him? You've got to check your heart before you even open your mouth. When someone comes to me and wants to know something about the character of God, I'm so excited to talk about God. I am so excited to talk about who he is and what he says and what he's done and what he may do, theology. But if someone comes questioning because they want God to prove himself to them, I let them continue in their ignorance because God doesn't have to prove himself to any of us. He already has. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, Jesus is speaking of this parable. At the very end of this parable, he says these words that are so true of us today. He says, he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Nailed it. 
Jesus uses this parable about Lazarus and the rich man. It's an amazing parable. I recommend you read it in Luke chapter 16. But what he says at the end of it is so true for us today. Even if a man rose from the dead, some will not believe. He's saying you don't listen to Moses and the prophets. You don't know the law. You don't know that the law all points to me. And even the resurrection from the dead is not enough for you because of your spiritual pride. I wonder, church, if the resurrection from the dead, the authority of God's word, the Holy Spirit who was sent as a gift from God is the seal of your salvation, the comforter and the convictor of sin. I wonder if all of that's not enough. We meet, we pray, we equip, we practice heaven, we worship, we give back of our time, treasure, and talents, we grow, we submit, we care, we love, we're being transformed, and I wonder if all of that's lost on some of us. And if one day we may realize we bought into a religion that was void of Jesus, and not a relationship with the one true God, because we were too proud to say that what we have done to justify ourselves in the past is worthless and receive the grace that God has given to his creation so we could be made righteous. But it all comes down, hear me, it all comes down to, do you know Jesus? And does he know you? So let me tell you about the time I got to have coffee with Steph Curry. You guys know who Steph Curry is? A couple of you? Okay, point guard for the Warriors. Warriors, best team in basketball right now. They better win. Uh, last time I said they were going to win, the Cavs beat them from a pulpit, so I'm not going to say they're going to win. I just hope they win. Steph Curry is a point guard, great three-point shooter. He's a Christian. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that Steph Curry's got going for him if you're a Warriors fan. And uh, I was at Santana Row. It's right over there. It's less than a mile. I walk there often. And I was at Santana Row, and I went to Pete's because it's holier than Starbucks. Sorry, as you hold your... your rapid, venti, whatever. Uh, and, and I got my iced tea lemonade, mostly iced tea, splash of lemonade, and I had my iced tea lemonade. And then I came out of the Pete's and I was walking down past a bunch of the restaurants and the places that sell ties for $700. And as I'm walking, I noticed this, it's a family, but it was only three of them at the time. This was years ago. And it's a, it's a taller man and his wife and then this little baby girl. And they're walking towards us. And as we're walking closer, I realized it's Steph Curry. And in his right hand, he's got some, some venti caramel something, something or something from Starbucks. And as I walked towards him and he walked towards me, our eyes locked and I went, hey, what's up? And he went, hey, what's up? That was the time I had coffee with Steph Curry. <laughs> now, let's imagine that you somehow run into Steph Curry somewhere. And you're like, hey, my pastor was just talking about you. My pastor, Tim Riley, he says he knows you. Now, Steph's pretty polite. So he'd probably go, oh, yeah, tell him I say hi. You know, he'd probably do that. But let's be real. I know a lot about Steph Curry. I know where he went to school before getting drafted. And, and I know, as he's played on the Warriors, I know who his brother is. I know who his dad is. I know all this stuff about Steph Curry. But do I know Steph Curry? No. I know of Steph Curry. And does Steph Curry know me? No. And I wonder if sometimes we put on our Sunday best, we do Christian things, 
we come to church and we look at God and we go, hey, what's up? And all we expect back from him is, hey, what's up? Scripture doesn't call us to have a acquaintance with God. He calls us sons and daughters. He says that we know him. In John 17, 3, Jesus is speaking. We'll get there eventually. And it says, now this is, the, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In Hebrew, there's a word for know, and it's a word that some of us have actually used before. It's yada. So if you've ever said yada, 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 what you're saying is I know, I know, I know. But in Greek, it's a different word. It's an experiential word. I know God. I know how my wife reacts to things because we're going to celebrate 16 years of marriage in July. I think it's July. Someone ask her. <laughs> yes, July. No, I'm just kidding. I know her. I know how she responds to things. I don't have ESP. I just have a consistent experiential relationship with my wife that when I look at her body language and her face, I can know I should probably back up because I know my wife. God does not call us to an acquaintance. God calls us to know him personally. So church, do you have eternal life? Do you know the one true God and the Son whom he has sent? Worship team, you can come on up. I'm going to pray for us.